I'll invite you to turn with me. We're going to be in the book of James, chapter number 1, looking at the first four verses. James the just, James the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, was also the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And if you remember the details from the book of Acts, you'll know that the church in Jerusalem in those early years especially, suffered greatly for their faith. And so James, as the uh, pastor of First Pres Jerusalem, he, uh, he knew what it was like to receive those kinds of phone calls, perhaps those kinds of phone calls that you've received that cause your blood to run cold, that stop you in your tracks. And so what James tells us tonight I think it's important for us to know that he is telling us this from the heart of a pastor, from a shepherd's heart for hurting people. So before we read these these great and encouraging words, let's go to our God in prayer and trust him to add his blessing to the exhortation of his word. Please pray with me. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, you have given us your word. And for that we thank you. Would you sow it in our hearts that it would reap 40, 60, or even 100 fold. And Lord, that it would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Hear God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is God's word. May his church say amen. Amen. Count it all joy. You know, we, we may be tempted to ask Pastor James if he had ever read the book of Proverbs. Maybe, you know, Pastor James, have you ever read Proverbs 25.20, which says... Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Is it insensitive for James to write to hurting, troubled people and say, count it all joy. It's all going to be okay. How do you say that to someone like one of my colleagues at Bethesda who just a few weeks ago had to rush out of school suddenly because she got one of those phone calls that said that her nephew had been shot down and murdered in a gas station parking lot over a small wad of cash. How do you say, count it all joy to a teenager who's caught in the middle of one of their parents' custody battles 
How do you say count it all joy to a man like Mr. Rob who has been unable to come to church or been able to live his daily life like normal because of the excruciating pain in his knee? Or how do you say it to a woman who's been battered by a drunken husband over and over and over again or even to the one whose spouse has been caught in the arms of another lover? How do you look them in the eye and say, count it all joy? I have thought about that for the last few weeks as I have tried to prepare for this evening. But that's what James says. He says, count it all joy, or perhaps to maybe get at the essence of his statement a little better, he says, count it pure joy or supreme joy. And the only, the only thing that I, can, that I can come up with, folks, is the is that the only way James could say something so bold, so in your face, is if it were absolutely true. If it were absolutely possible. Because I do not think that James at all intends to rip off our coat on a cold day. I think James's intentions is to give us a warmer coat. And I am convinced from Scripture that even in our most horrid hours, our darkest days, they can be overcome with joy. Because we can rest and know that our trials and tribulations, they do more than rend us, though they do. Better yet, they, they mend us and perfect us. And so, from this passage, I, I want us to think about three things that can bring us incredible joy even in our moments of greatest suffering. The first one being that joy is found in knowing we are not alone in our trials. Secondly, joy is found in knowing that God is sovereign over our trials. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, Joy is found in knowing that God has a grand purpose for us in our trials. To begin then, joy is found in knowing that we are not alone. Christians everywhere across time and geography suffer. All Christians do. None of us are exempt from suffering as we live in a fallen world and even as we wrestle with our own remaining sin. Notice what James says in verse 1. Who's he writing to? To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Most uh, scholars would say, most commentaries would, would agree that James is most likely addressing Jewish Christians who no longer are living in Jerusalem. They've been scattered all over the Roman Empire chiefly because they have been persecuted. Uh, you Again, think about the book of Acts, the things like the martyrdom of Stephen or the beheading of James or even the, uh, the persecution that arose from Saul of Tarsus, right? It, it drove Jewish Christians out of Jerusalem and spread them all over the Roman Empire because they were being persecuted by, because of their faith. And these Christians were continuing to suffer even in the places that they had fled to when they left 
Jerusalem, they were experiencing economic hardships like poverty and starvation. They were being culturally ostracized because Christianity was about the weirdest thing on the market. They were being physically persecuted, tortured, killed. They were being imprisoned for their faith. And then on top of that, just suffering from the unfortunate normals of living in a fallen world. The things that even you and I deal with. Sickness, plague, natural disaster, mental health crises, you name it. They, they were suffering these things. No one, he's writing to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, all of you out there, James says, are going to be facing trials of various kinds. And he doesn't say if you suffer. He says when you suffer. And it's not, I don't think you would agree, you would agree that it's not that any of us want another person to suffer. We don't want anyone to be going through it, as it were. And at least for me, at the same time, it is truly comforting to know that I'm not alone when I'm in pain. Because the truth is, is that God, He has saved us. He has not saved us unto ourselves. He's not saved us to live our own Christian life on an island by ourselves. He's, he has saved us and He has brought us into the body of Christ, into the community of believers. And that includes the fellowship of our suffering. We do not have to go it alone. Just as Christ, we know one of, the, one of the implications of Him being born as a man, right, of Him being incarnate, is that He knows what it is to suffer like we suffer. He is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And you and I can understand one another also. We're also touched by the feeling of one another's infirmities because you know what it's like to suffer, just as I know what it's like to suffer. And it's encouraging when we can tell our story and someone is willing and ready to hear our story and, and, and cry with us or pray with us and pray for us. Have you ever gotten one of those text messages or phone calls thinking about you today? I've had you on my heart. I'm praying for you. It's so encouraging, not only because it's good to know that, that someone else is thinking about you and praying for you, but to think that God Almighty knows where you are, so much so that He placed you on someone else's heart. That you're not having to go through this alone, and that you are surrounded by people who have suffered just as you have suffered. So hear me, my fellow sufferers tonight. My fellow brothers and sisters who have gone through trials, we need to always be improving on how we hold one another up. Don't let the lessons that you have learned from your trials, don't let the lessons and the gifts that you've received from your suffering go to waste. Look around you. Do you see someone else in pain? Do you see someone else suffering, don't let them go it alone. Come alongside them. Encourage them. There's great joy in knowing that we're not alone in our suffering. But secondly, 
And even more importantly, there's joy found in knowing that God is sovereign over our trials. Look at verse 3. James qualifies his statement, count it all joy, by saying, For you know. That's interesting. Everything he, everything he has said and is going to say is predicated on their prior knowledge. You know. I think one commentator said it super sharply whenever he makes the point that James is saying here that his audience had been properly catechized. They had been properly catechized. Well, what had they been catechized in? Well, he's writing to Jewish Christians, right? He's writing to... He's writing to people who had grown up being taught in synagogue probably their whole life the Old Testament. And as, as people who had known the Old Testament, what would they have known? What would they have been taught and catechized? Well, when we survey the Old Testament, I think that we can all come to the very sound conclusion that the Old Testament teaches us over and over and over again that God is sovereign even over our darkest days. God's in control. James is going to, I think, further validate this point because if, if you look at the rest of the book, James is going to point his audience to at least Abraham and Job. Pictures, two men who are pictures of suffering. But not just suffering, suffering under the careful and loving plan of Almighty God. Abraham and Job were. If you go to verse 11 of chapter 5, you'll notice, listen to this. James says, Behold, we consider blessed those who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And what's a Job a picture of? When you hear Job, what's the first thing you think of? I don't want to be him. I, please, not Job. I don't want to be Job. Why? Because he suffered so greatly. But you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. James argues that the trials of Job were part of God's purpose for Job. The trials that Abraham endured were part of God's purpose for Abraham. R.C. Sproul, you know him, right? He's famous for his saying, there is no maverick molecule in God's universe. That everything is under God's control down to the molecular level. Nothing gets past God. Nothing happens outside of God's divine, ordained will and plan. And it is, it is either going to frighten you to hear that, or it's going to comfort you. And if our God was fickle or temperamental or given to evil, then the idea that there is no maverick molecule in God's universe ought to freak you out. But our God's none of those things. He's good. He's good. And God is so good, and He's so good all the time, that the psalmist could say in Psalm 119.71, listen to this, it was good for me that I was written a million dollar check. 
That's not what he says. It was good for me that I lived a cushy life on a Hawaiian island. That's not what he says. He says, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? So that I might learn your statutes. It's prayer. Think of how such a good God has sovereignly worked in the lives of Abraham and Job, Joseph, David, Peter. Keep going. How about Martin Luther? Corey Ten Boom in a Holocaust concentration camp. Jim and his wife Elizabeth after he was murdered for his faith. God worked through these people, but He did it chiefly through their trials. He did it chiefly through their suffering. And the truth is, I think, at least for myself... Maybe you would agree with me. I want to take the pen from God and I want to write my own story. I think I could write a better narrative if you would just give me the pen and give me the paper, God. We think that we can do it better than Him, don't we? But if you have children, I'm sure that you've had this conversation with your children. I've had this conversation over and over with my children. I heard Paul Tripp say this one time. And I, it's like he read my mind. He, he, he's like he's got cameras in my house. He knew, how do you know that I've said this? But I, I've looked at my children. I've gotten down and looked them in the eye and say, Son, do you know that Daddy loves you? I know that you don't understand why I am saying no right now. I know that you do not understand why I am telling you that this is what you must do. I'm, and son, to be honest with you, you cannot bear the weight of knowing why I am saying and making you do what you're doing right now. It's too heavy for you to bear. But I want you to know that daddy loves you and that everything daddy does for you, he is doing it because he is after your best. He's after your good and he loves you. And I need you to trust Daddy right now. I need you to do exactly what Daddy has said because you trust Daddy. I need you to not try to tell Daddy how to be Daddy. God is the greatest Father that we could ever have. And our lives are not in control of the devil. And our lives are not in control, under the control of some madman, some tyrant, but a loving father. And even though we do not understand what he is doing, he is doing it. Because He's God. And He's doing it for the third thing I want us to talk about. He is doing it for a purpose. That joy is found in knowing that God has a purpose for our trials. 
I really think it's important for us to know because I, I think suddenly, su- subtly this invades my mind at times, but it is, it is not at all that God is sitting up in heaven getting His jollies from our trials and tribulations. God is not sitting back in heaven just having Himself a great time watching us suffer. God does not find joy, but rather He is saddened by the things that we suffer, His children living in a fallen world. It grieves His heart, and yet, and yet, and yet, He does bring it or permit it for good and holy purposes. He does. James says in verse 3 that our faith is tested. The testing of your faith, he says. Now, this term in the Greek here, testing, is only, is only used here and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 in the New Testament. However, interestingly, this word for testing in, in verse 3 is used to translate at least two passages in the Greek Septuagint, the, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. It translates Psalm 12, verse 6, and it translates Proverbs 27, verse 21. Listen to what Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 12 and 6 says. It says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver. Here's our, here's our term. Refined, tested in the furnace of the ground. Purified seven times. Listen to Proverbs 27, 21. The crucible, that's our, that's our word, the testing, the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. And so this word that James is using in verse 3 for testing, it carries the idea of the crucible. It, ha- it has the idea of purification of a precious metal in a hot furnace. James is not saying that your faith is being tested as though it's being weighed in the balance to see whether or not it's good faith or bad faith, whether it's genuine or false. That's not what he's saying. James is saying that the true, genuine faith that you already possess, that you have received from God, is being separated from the junk. It's being refined in the fire. In essence, what James is saying is that by being rended, you're being mended. He says this testing or this refining process produces something. What does it produce? He says it produces steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. And the etymology of this particular word here has the idea of remaining under, right? Steadfastness, remaining under. Douglas Moo says the picture is of a person who successfully carries a heavy load for a long time. Some of you may have personal experience with this, or if not, you can imagine with me, you've, you live around a few military bases, I'm sure you've seen soldiers who are running with a full pack of gear, dressed head to toe in their, uh, in their fatigues, helmet, uniform, heavy boots, a pack full of stuff, and they're just running, 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 running. Why? To prepare for battle. To prepare for battle. Because the more you run the better you run. 
Pastor David's a runner. He knows what it is to, to run up to your threshold and then run past your threshold, run through the pain and increase your threshold. And eventually you can run miles and miles and miles. For you science or medical whizzes out there, right, it's uh, hypertrophy. Hypertrophy. I, I, had to, I had to look up even how to pronounce that, okay? Hypertrophy. It occurs, listen to this, this is, this is a definition of hypertrophy. This is not Jonathan's definition. Okay, so hypertrophy occurs when the fibers of the muscle sustain damage or energy. The body repairs the damaged fibers by fusing them together, which increases the mass and the size of the muscle. So the more exercise you do to break the muscles down, the more the muscles rebuild itself stronger and more durable. Apply that to your spiritual life. Apply that to the process of steadfastness under trials. That, in essence, through the practice of perseverance, through the practice of steadfastness, even though it may be rending you, at the same time it is mending you. And you'll notice that the object of verse 3, steadfastness, it becomes the subject of verse 4. The testing of your faith does not end with steadfastness because steadfastness still has a work to do. For the steadfastness, what does it do? It has a goal. James says that the full effect of steadfastness, when it is finished, is to make us perfect. Any perfect people here tonight? Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God has ordained the crucible of our trials to make us perfect. And James takes that idea of perfection and he just hammers it right here in, in just a few words. He hammers it and hammers it right into our hearts because notice he says, we're being made perfect and complete. Or you're being made whole and sound. Shalom, right? Complete. And we're so much so, so much perfect, so much complete, so fully so that he says we lack in nothing. I'm not there yet. But what a beautiful and glorious purpose that God has for the crucibles of our suffering. He's not content to just leave us lumbering in our remaining sin. He's not content with where He saved us, right? But he is, he is perfecting us. You may say that you feel the exact opposite of that tonight. Jonathan, everything you're saying sounds good, but I don't feel an ounce of it. As a matter of fact, it all feels very much the opposite. Why this trial? Why right now? I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know now. And I would hate to try and patronize you with an answer. I wish that I could send you to Pastor David and say, Pastor David gets paid to know the answers. 
please go to him after church. But as you can see, he is shaking his head. He does not know. Why now? Or why this? But our peace and our joy, church, is not in knowing the minutia of God's secret will. Paul Tripp says it this way. Our joy is found in trusting that God is good and that all He does is good. The more you meditate on His glory, His power, His wisdom, His grace, His faithfulness, His righteousness, His patience, His zeal to redeem, and His commitment to His eternal promises to you, the more that you can deal with the mystery in your life. Maybe you feel like there's a lot of mystery in your life. I don't understand this. Focus on how good your God is. And know that all things will work together for good, for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to His promise. And so far as I can tell, the surest way that I could attempt demonstrating to you tonight of the goodness of God, even in the midst of your trials, is to take us to the place where the greatest example of rending and mending come together. It happened on Golgotha's hill. where the Son of God hung gasping for every breath and His blood muddied the ground beneath His feet. Oh, how He was rent. So much so, the ultimate price for someone else's sinning. Hebrews 2.10 says this, For it was fitting, fitting, get this, it was proper. For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, Christ, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Christ's work as our mediator was made perfect. It was brought to completion through His suffering. And He suffered not to perfect Himself, but to perfect you. Just like our trials... His trials was orchestrated by the sovereign hand of the Father. However, unlike our trials, He suffered alone. And He suffered alone so that you and I would not have to. We don't suffer alone, church. But neither are we perfected alone. Because He is perfecting for Himself, not just Jonathan, not just the elders of the church. 
He's perfecting his entire church, every single one of us. Why? Because he is preparing for himself a bride. A bride that is going to be presented to him without spot or wrinkle, clothed in the linen of the righteousness of the saints. That's the big picture. That's the goal. And all of this is going to come through the strain of steadfastness and the cleansing of the crucible and the grace of Almighty God. Some have said that the entire book of James is framed around eschatologically anticipated joy. That it's knowing the destination is worth the voyage. So I dare say, that if we spent serious time meditating, meditating and praying on that right there, in your darkest days when your mind is clouded and you're asking a million why questions, focus on this. What God is ultimately doing in you, I am convinced that the more we meditate and spend time in prayer on these glorious realities, that there can be joy that exceeds and overcomes our worst days. Because we can know that even though we are rent and in pain, God is mending and making us whole. Let's pray. Father, what... Promises that you have made to us. What glorious promises you have made to us. That all things work together for those who love God. For those who are the called according to his purpose. And Lord even as it takes the heat of the sun. To bear down upon the seed. So that the seed might grow. And that the fruit might ripen into its full sweetness. We pray, Lord, that as we sit under the sweltering sun of trials, that you would not wither us, but make us sweet. As sweet as our Savior. Because we know that you will perfect us in that day. We ask all of this, knowing it is as good as done. In Jesus we pray. Amen.